It's a very well-known reading. A reading that has given our language two sayings. Turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. It's a reading that has led some people to think that to follow Christ means that we need to be doormats to turn the other cheek all the time. To be used means to be used and abused and to not complain about it. That to go the second mile means to be used and abused and to not complain about it. It's also a reading that others have used to demand that others turn the other cheek and go the second mile and not complain about it. Sadly, over the centuries, it's been used by those in power to demand more of women and poor and slaves to do exactly as Christ seems to command that they should do. So it's surprising, therefore, to find out that this particular passage and the whole Sermon on the Mount were two, uh, one, of the, one of the most important pieces of scripture for two of our greatest leaders of the last century, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., for both of these people, the Sermon on the Mount provided two things. The first was a vision of how life could be, should be. For Mahatma Gandhi, it provided part of the inspiration for what a free India should look like. And for Martin Luther King Jr., it provided the background by which he could understand what America could look like if it only lived out its constitution, where all men are created equal. And if you listen to Martin Luther King's sermons at all those rallies that he talked to during the Civil Rights Campaign, many of them were based on the Sermon on the Mount. And the passage we heard today provided the inspiration for Mahatma Gandhi's non-violent protests and Martin Luther King's non-violent movement, the civil rights movement. Now, in neither of those movements were people doormats. They did not lie down and take the abuse. So how is that possible? The problem is that when we read passages like this, we forget about everything that is around them. So this week we have read that little piece of the Sermon on the Mount. But we forget that it is part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not an isolated four or five or six verses. It sits within two and a half chapters of Jesus' teaching, which sits within a whole gospel. And to read it, we have to put it back into that context. And we also have to remember who Jesus is talking to. So we began looking at the Sermon on the Mount by reading the Beatitudes, which some commentators suggest shouldn't be called the Beatitudes at all, because the Beatitudes means blessed are. And they suggest that actually the word we translate as blessed 
would be much better translate, translated as honoured. And honoured has a different meaning. And in an honour society, which Jesus lived in, it has a much different meaning. It means the people that we should be honouring, giving the most honour to, looking up to, listening to, should not be the rich and the powerful and the religious, but should be the poor in spirit, those who thirst and hunger after righteousness, those who mourn, those who meek, and the rest of the list. Now that's a very different list. We can almost say that Jesus is saying we need to rethink our society and how we operate as a society. And then Jesus said, if we follow this, then we will be salt of the earth and light of the world. And for those of you who are a little bit concerned that this doesn't really fit with what Moses is on about, let me tell you that this is exactly what the law of Moses is about and what the prophets were about. And so I say to you, not one letter of the law will pass away. I am fulfilling everything that the law is on about. And then he said that our righteousness, or the listener's righteousness, should exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, that's a bit difficult, because they, they were supposed to be the most righteous group. They were the ones who built fences around the law of Moses and made sure you couldn't even get close to disobeying the law of Moses, because there were all these other laws that meant that you couldn't even begin to disobey the law of Moses. They were the most obedient people of all people. And then last week we heard him talk about what happens if we think righteousness is about just obeying the law of Moses. And he said, you have heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but I say to you that if you are even angry at a person, you have committed murder in your heart. And then he carries on to this week. And Jesus, we have to remember, is talking to mostly poor people, peasants, a few slaves, and a few aliens, non-Jews, people who are finding in Jesus' words life. He is talking to the poorly treated, the abused, those who are seen as less than human. So in light of that, is it fair to think that he's saying to these people, you should just get hard, tough it out, suck it up, and put up with all the abuse that you're having heaped on you? Do you think that's a fair reading of what Jesus is saying at this point? I don't think it is. So how else can we understand it? Well, let's have a look at the first three things. Who would hit somebody on the right cheek? What kind of person would do that? Any ideas? Well, yes. A body? Somebody? A body would, yes, but a particular body. A bully. A bully would. Yes. 
But a particular bully, a rich bully, and a powerful bully, the people who are around the edges of what Jesus is, the people that Jesus is talking to, and those people would hit the people that Jesus is talking to, the poor and the slaves. And that was accepted. And there were rules about it. The rules were that you would hit that person with the back of your right hand across their right cheek, and that the person being hit would stand there and take it and not complain. But here's the thing. What happens if you've been hit across the right cheek and you turn your head so that you present the left cheek? What does the person who is supposed to hit you with the back of their right hand do? I could invite you at this point to try hitting each other on the left cheek with the back of your right hand. And it would be a safe thing to do because you can't do it. It is very difficult to hit somebody on the left cheek with the back of your right hand. You can hit them with the front of your right hand, and you can hit them with the back of your left hand, but it is very difficult to hit them on the left cheek with the back of your right hand. Which means, while you look like you're complying, you're actually saying, to hit me, you have to break the rules. And that will bring dishonour on you and your family. It means that you have lost control. So it looks like you're just, Jesus is saying to them, you should just tough it out, suck it in, put up the abuse, it'll get better one day. But actually Jesus is saying, by doing this, you will bring shame on that person. Because their third option is to not hit you. You end the violence. Well, what about suing? Who sues people? Who would sue people in Jesus' time? The wealthy. Did poor people sue people? Of course not. They didn't have access to the courts. They couldn't afford to go near a court. It was the wealthy that sued people. So if they sued somebody for their coat and that person was a poor person, what would they have left? I mean, their coat was their outer garment. It was the thing that kept the sun off them. It was the thing that kept them warm in winter, that allowed them to stay alive. What do you think they would have left if they lost their coat? Anything? Well, they'd have their underwear, which is the cloak. So Jesus is saying, if somebody sues you for your coat, give them your underpants. Stand there naked and let them explain to everyone why they have rendered you naked and likely to die in the next winter. Let them explain that. Sure, you'll be shamed, but standing around in your underpants, you're already pretty shamed anyway. Heap shame on that rich person. Show up their greed. Let them explain it. And then lastly, who asks people to walk a mile carrying a load? What kind of person would do that? 
Any ideas? Soldiers, particularly Roman soldiers, but even Jewish soldiers. Soldiers could do that. And the rules were that you could ask anyone, but usually peasants, to carry or load for a mile, and only a mile. The trouble was, if you were dragged away from your job for a day, well, it was effectively a day. By the time you'd been taken away, carried the load, which were heavy loads, then got rid of the load and walked back, you'd lost a day's work. And unlike today's world, where you get paid weekly or every two weeks or monthly, you got paid every day at the end of the day for the work you'd done. So you would not get paid that day, so your family would not have food that day. So it was actually a huge burden on the peasant population. And Jesus doesn't say, suck it up, get tough, put up with it. He says, make it really obvious just how bad this is. Offer to go a second mile. Now that does two things. The first is it means somebody else doesn't have to lose a day's pay. And it means the Roman soldiers are going to begin to think, what why are these people doing that? And what is the cost to them? And it makes it very obvious what the cost is to everyone concerned. Now each of those three things was a way of exposing the injustice of what was happening and stopping it. It was not a suck it up, get tough, put up with what's happening kind of statement. But Jesus goes on and then he has one of my favourite verses, give to everyone who begs. Now I hear this every time I go overseas and walk into places full of beggars and I look at all those beggars and I think, come on Jesus, how can I give to all of these people? Well what's Jesus talking about there? Well he's saying, well here's the question, who would you look after in Jesus' day? Who are the people that you would give money to? Well, maybe, but probably not. Unless, maybe, yes. Well, you'd hope, but mostly not, because actually most of the time the people you gave money to and looked after were your family, your kin. Your kin, your family were your neighbours. And those people, those people you looked after. Those people you cared for. Those people you made sure, well at least pretended in some cases, that you were concerned about their welfare. So when Jesus says, you should give to everyone who begs, Jesus is saying, you should be looking at and treating everyone who begs as a member of your family. Because they are your neighbours. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And you too are to love your neighbour as yourself. It's kind of like the parable of the good Samaritan all over again. Jesus is pushing the boundaries out about who are your neighbours. Who you should be feeling connected to. Who you should be concerned about. Who you should be working for their fair and just treatment. Everyone. 
When somebody comes to borrow from you, who would borrow from you, a member of your family. If anyone comes to borrow from you, treat them like your family. I've got to say, that doesn't help, really, for me. It's just going to make me feel even worse every time I go overseas, but at least I can understand what he's talking about. And then Jesus finishes with, we should be perfect like our Father is perfect. Now at this point we'd be very pleased to know that we're halfway through the sermon. (laughs) But as I thought about it, I thought, well that's quite enough already. So I didn't print the second half. And I will keep it for next week. But I want you to think about what does it mean to be perfect? And to answer that question, you have to wonder what does it mean for God to be perfect? And I think that term is connected with the righteousness of God and the holiness of God. And I will suggest that the way you understand that is to look at Jesus. Because the Gospel writers wrote their Gospels so that we could understand who God is. So over the next week, think about what does it mean for God to be perfect? And in light of that, what does it mean for us to be perfect? And we'll explore that next week with part two of this week's sermon.